Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 3 to one go with Cosmo Macero, and we are talking the Wayfair walkout, the BBJ looks at elevator safety in Massachusetts, and we've got sharks on Cape Cod. Then, Ann Murphy interviews Joanne Simon and Nick Savaris from Northeast Dark. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking Democratic debates. First up, 3 to one go Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 3 to one go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 3 to one go employees of Boston-based Wayfair stage a walkout over the company's decision to continue supplying furniture to contractors supplying U.S. Customs and Border Control migrant holding facilities. The ongoing saga provides an opportunity for lessons in handling a PR crisis. We'll discuss some of them. And Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal joins us to talk about an eye-opening BBJ special report on the state of commercial elevator safety in Massachusetts. The findings might have you thinking twice next time you're going up or down. Finally, it's the precious summer season on Cape Cod, and sure enough, the great white sharks are back. Alarming early summer shark sightings seem to be picking up where last year's tragic season ended. It's both a public safety issue on the Cape's pristine beaches and a potential PR and marketing challenge for the Commonwealth's most cherished tourism asset. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyanne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyanne, summer's here. It is. It's I've official. Got, I've got and an ankle-deep policy in the ocean right now. How about yourself? Same. 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 All right, we'll get to that later. All right, Kyanne, let's start with Wayfair. Now, you made it. You made your way over to the walkout the we other did. day. We did. Uh, first-hand account. Tell us what uh, what you saw. Good for them. Very organic. It was a um, good showing. I think I read in the news that they cleared out one full floor at the very least, which is really impressive. They threw this together pretty quickly. Um, and it, you know, it's one of those things that really shows you the power of it. It just takes one person or a couple people to really like make a movement and get something started. Uh, they wrote a very eloquent great letter to the leadership when they found out about what happened. For anyone who doesn't know, they found out that the company had sold $200,000 worth of beds for use of children at the border. Um, yeah. And nobody's to, to, mad. To a government, to a contractor. To a contractor that was going to supply the beds. Nobody's mad about children having beds. Uh, but it was this idea that they were profiting off of it and they had a real problem with yeah. it. And uh, the employees banded together and said, let's do something about it. Also, many of them stressing that they love the company. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was really, which it, was good. important. It speaks, well, it speaks well to the company culture, more or less. Mm -hmm. It also speaks well to them, to uh, for the employees to sort of incorporate that into, we don't want to hurt our company. We just want nope. to take a stand on this issue. Raise attention. And... Um, so there's a few PR lessons. Number one, how to mobilize quickly uh, a, a, a group of activists uh, yeah. to deliver a major impact, kind of a national impact. And what's uh, interesting is of, definitely these people aren't activists. No, they're just you know, they're just they're workers. people who who yeah. felt like they saw something wrong and they wanted to do and they wanted to say something about it. Um, they had a band out there. They had some music choreographed. It was uh, it was jovial. We didn't stay for a very long time, but. 
Um, they were they walked into Copley Square to a reception of a lot of people clapping for them with signs. And, and correct me out. if I'm wrong. It, it, it's not an ongoing. It doesn't look like it's going to be an ongoing standoff. Meaning, no. they took action. Yep, they're back at work. A today. day of action, back at work. Yeah, got it. Now, so that's one lesson: how to do something, how to do that kind of event, that kind of a protest or civil action in the right way. Number two, with the company, they've had a little bit of. Uh, a misstep, at least people like us, PR practitioners might say, in the way they responded to this, Um, including several periods of no commenting, including sort of reaffirming that we do business with our clients and if they're operating legally, all of which is true. It It has merit. It has merit. (laughs) Absolutely. There did seem to be some solutions that they could have arrived at differently, but the bottom line is, you know, their stance was, this is a client, this is a customer, we're going to serve the customer, yeah. and that's really all we have to say about it. I think that they learned from that over a period of days. I know what I would have done yeah. um, w- differently, but but what do you think? Well, one of the things, that we've talked about this before, is that when we come and a client's in a bad situation, the first thing we say is, you're not going to talk your way out of it, you can't fake your way out of it, you got to do the right thing. Exactly. So you do the right thing, and then you communicate what you're doing, and everything sort of starts to fall into place. Fingers crossed. Right thing meaning right versus wrong. Exactly. That's that's subjective. That is subjective. um, But even how they said, you know, what they said, again, has merit. They are a company that they do business. They're, you know, no one's against the idea of these, again, these kids having beds. Um, They should have beds. They should have much more than that. But it was all sort of a little cold, yeah. I think is the word I would use. I think they arrived at a, <laughs> they arrived at a significant donation to the American Red Cross. Hundred thousand, ser- hundred thousand yeah. that ser- that serves. I would argue they should have done the full two. The, yeah, well, well, but. I mean, that's the contract. What's the profit? I don't know what that figure is. Yeah, true. I might have suggested, and they might, and, and, and a hypothetical client might have just ignored me. But I might have said, you know, there's a there, there's a message here, which is ultimately. Whatever you think of the contractor, or certainly what we all as a country think of the process at the border, there's kids that need beds. Yes. And and, and we're not going to not provide beds for those kids through this contractor. As a company, if our employees and us as management feel we want to send the right message about what we think of U.S. policy, a way to do that would be to steer the profit from that transaction to whatever, the American Red Cross, or directly to families, or whatever it might be. Yeah, there's a couple organizations um, out there. Or, or it could have been the whole 200000 I guess, but not smart business practice to take a loss on it for a cause, but that's an option too. But it's also, what is a donation? You know, the, the you could donate. There's a, there's yeah. a whole, I, I, again, I, I don't actually, know enough. I, I honestly think this is could have been solved mostly with the right words um, a little warmer. A little warmer, and, and because yeah. they were going to take the right actions eventually. Yeah. Anyway, it's a fascinating one. And um, and headquarters right here in Boston. Headquarters right here in Coppice yeah. Square. All right, Cayenne. All right, up next, we're joined by Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal. He's here to talk about the BBJ special report on elevator safety. Greg, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Um, all right, so this is a fascinating project uh, and, and, a, and a terrific and eye-opening special report. And, and I'm curious, just first off, how it came about. It's 
it's something that I think people might casually think of if they eyeball those certificates and when they get into an elevator. Um, but it had to begin somewhere with a, uh, an initiative, a tip or something and, and, and talk about how it came about. Sure. Um, so I received a tip a while ago now, probably over a year ago, from someone in the elevator industry about a, a variety of safety issues. Um, so I filed some public records requests with the state. Um, and one of the things I got back was this inspection rate, you know, the inspection backlog, you know, how many elevators in Massachusetts have gone uninspected for more than a year. Um, and at that point, the number was you know, close to 7,000. This was at the beginning of the year, wow. um, which was, was, was far more than the last public audit of the elevator agency. Um, back in 2014, um, Suzanne Bump's office did an audit of, of elevator inspections, um, and it was, it was quite bad then. Um, and, but since then, and there was some press coverage around the issue at that time, um, but there hadn't really been any, any attention paid to the issue r lately, and so the, the numbers I, I got through that request were, were pretty eye-opening. Is there a specific interval for all elevators in terms of the inspection schedule, or does it vary? Uh, for all every, every year, every 18 months, every three years. So in Massachusetts, every passenger elevator uh, is supposed to be inspected at least once a year by the state. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's been, this has been an issue for, for decades now. The state has always had a problem with keeping up with that, that task. Um, and like I said, it's the, thousands of elevators at the moment are, have gone um, more than a year without an inspection, and in some cases, far more than a year. Um, in my story, I talk about some of the, the high-profile, highly-trafficked buildings um, that, that haven't been inspected. I mean, buildings like the former Hancock Tower, Boston Children's Museum, Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, as of, at one point this year, they had elevators that hadn't been inspected in at least 18 months by the state. Wow. Now, a couple of key findings that I found fascinating. Number one, um, not a small number of injuries reported over the past, I say, three years, I think it was, in, in different incidents. And if there's more to be learned about that, I'd love to. And also, an increase in the number of calls to, I think it was Boston Fire, um, and maybe outside the city too, but to, certainly to the Boston Fire Department, for people trapped in elevators. That's right. So, yeah, on the injury front, looking at just injuries on elevators that are past their inspection date, um, there have been nearly a dozen um, recorded injuries um, from 2016 to 2018 in Massachusetts. Um, that includes everything from, you know, head injuries, you know, elevators suddenly stopping, people falling down, you know, hitting their head, um, possible bone fractures, that sort of thing. Um, and that, that number may actually undercount it because um, one of the things I found are quite a few lawsuits in uh, the state court system related to elevator injuries that do not have a, a state record associated with that injury. So, you know, there may be more injuries out there that are that are being that are that the state knows about. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then that that was one of the other eye popping numbers I found through my my reporting was that that entrapment number. Um, so, from 2015 to 2018, in both Boston and Cambridge, um, the number of calls that the fire department were received related to people stuck in elevators uh, was up by over 30 percent. So that number has gone up every year and, is, and keeps going up. Wow. We're talking to Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal about the BBJ special report on elevator safety and inspection rates. You, you mentioned the auditors at the state auditor's office and over the years there have been audits and, and this is not a new issue and I, and I imagine there have been pledges at reform but, but nothing has really been done enough to impact and improve 
this inspection rate or the backlog. I'm guessing the solution is more inspectors and some more funding. That's right. Yeah, there, you're right. There have been some some attempts at reform. Every time a new audit comes out, that that shows the the rate is high. There's there's been talk of reform, but um, yeah, it's just one of these issues where audit comes out, the state hires more inspectors, then the issue kind of gets out of the public eye. You know, the 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 staff numbers go down. The funding, you know, from the past few years, the funding had been cut, um, and the the backlog goes up. So, um, yeah, it's it's really you know the simple, the most straightforward solution to to this issue is is more inspectors. Um, the state currently, and not a, not a ton more. This isn't something that would re- require millions and millions of dollars. Um, you know, right, right now the state has 62 elevator inspectors. Uh, I talked to a few people in the, in the industry who, who say that 70 inspectors would really be enough okay. to... to so that's, a, that's a manageable solution. You know, you yeah. hire 10 more people or so and you're, you're in good shape. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, Easy for us to it's say. budget season. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, there, I'm sure there are dozens of other groups that could find a, a way to, to use that money. But yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a question of priorities, you know. People, the injuries have been going up over the past few years as the inspection backlog has grown. And so, you know, luckily there hasn't been a death, um, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, across the country, deaths are, are you know, they, they, they do happen in elevators. So it's a, it's a question of, of, of priorities. I think I read that the governor's budget, at least, and maybe the final budget included some increased funding. Maybe. To, to address this. Yeah, there there is a year-over-year year increase in funding. Um, and actually, since I began investigating uh, the backlog, the state has added they have they've added eight inspectors. So they were they were at fifty four. Now they're up to sixty two um, since the beginning of the year. Um, so things are moving in the right direction. Um, but even with that proposed increase, um, the level of funding is still only where it was in twenty fifteen. Um, and there are you know there. Are Quite a few more elevator, you know. Look around, you know. There are cranes dotting the the Boston skyline everywhere you look. So, th- there are more elevators than there were then. So, you know, some some critics have said even with that that proposed increase, it's it's still not enough to, to get w- to where the state needs to be. All right, Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks for joining us on OA on Air. Fascinating story. Much appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. All right. All right, Cayenne, back to sharks. Seven great whites. I heard it was nine, but I guess it was just seven. Maybe they double counted. Seven great whites. Seven. A school of sharks. I mean, it could have been two other sharks. Spotted on Cape Cod Bay Monday. This past Monday, first real week of summer, um, the Mass Department of Marine Fisheries has tagged 150 great white sharks off the Cape over the past several years. Um, and there's a whole s- variety of public safety measures. Uh, lifeguards on well fleet, flying purple shark flags, confirmed sightings, evacuation with a black flag. Um, the, the, the researchers are tagging more sharks. Um, the, the, um, the Chamber of Commerce is, you know, getting into this in terms of awareness programs about shark, about swimmer safety. All, all kinds of stuff happening. I don't want to use a cliche, but it, it really feels more and more every summer like Jaws was just 40 years ahead of its time in terms of the, the, the book and the movie or 45 years or whatever, how long it was. Because it's kind of what we're living, right? Yeah. Great Whites. Gives me some off the anxiety. Cape, got a horrible, a fatality last September. And now it's like, okay, are people still going to even come to the Cape? Because last year it was like, oh, it's shark tourism. Now it's like actually people are being eaten. 
Well, and then there were people that did the shark tourism and people were not appreciating no. the shark tourism because this is not a laughing matter. This is serious, it, serious stuff. It is. Um, there, I feel there, like there, I'm talking to my son. It's what I say about the water. I'm like, water and swimming is fun, but it's serious business yeah. in, in the ocean even more so. It definitely when there is. there are sharks. Look, in Australia, which is absolutely overrun with sharks, shark management is, uh, in, in terms of man-made... I don't know if it's infrastructure or there's yeah. there there are there are measures put in place within um, the ocean within the ocean within the be- around beaches to sort of shield or protect yeah. humans from sharks. Some people say that's a great idea. We need to invest in that. I think the Cape Cod Chambers talked about that. Other people like, hey, you know what? You don't build a wall around around uh, Yellowstone Park because there's bears. You know, I I I I, I get that, but I bet if they start hurting and killing people we'd have a different discussion we might I we mean, might what would you do if you were advising the cape cod chamber and uh, the various tourist organizations the ones that appear to be hurt the most right now it's not restaurants and bars and things like that and shopping it's surf shops right yeah the, the, the types of activity that get you right into the water surfing and paddle boarding and kayaking the, the, the ki- kayakers have been attacked several times in, the, in yeah. recent years in the cape what would you do Scary. to protect that business? You know, I think uh, you got to do a deep dive to really answer that very well. No pun intended. It really wasn't. Um, <laughs> Where's the snare drum? <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, but I think you find ways. How can how can you guarantee safety? Does that mean you take some of these activities to different waterways? Maybe it's lakes and rivers instead of the ocean, and it's not always the same appeal, but safety first. And that's what people want to feel. They want to feel particularly, you know, we were just talking about this before. You got kids. Your kids want to go to the ocean. They want to play. If you want to canoe, if you want to paddleboard, if you want to do a lot of activities, maybe you don't have to do them in the ocean. So maybe if you are one, some of these shops, you look to some other bodies of water or areas that are cordoned off that you can say, you know, we can guarantee your safety and, and come on yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the means exist, the technology exists so to create safer or safe or protected sort of swim Safe swim zones or lagoons. They have those at like the pond in Canton. Yeah, and now it's it's not just a matter of depth. You can be attacked, you know, in shallow fatally water. by a shark and in three feet or less of water. Yes, we've learned that. We've learned that, but but there's measures that can be taken that maybe are not so invasive that you're negatively impacting the Cape Cod National Seashore, which we definitely can't do uh, and don't want to. But that could be part of it also. But I think this summer is kind of a tipping point. What's going to happen this summer on the Cape with tourism? Uh, and, and, and how will it be impacted, and, and, and what are the measures you, you do to protect it? I rented a house for a week in August for our family vacation and in Chatham. And the woman, when she responded in the booking, and I was asking questions, she was like, you know, I, I don't know if you're from the area or where you're from, but just so you know, we have this shark problem here, which I thought was very kind of her, very bold for all she knows. I'm coming from God knows where, and I don't pay attention to the shark traffic in uh, Cape Cod, but... You know, we decided to book it anyways. Now I'm slightly nervous and feeling like maybe that wasn't the best thing. But that's, well, I don't want to be that. like you that. Get, you get, when you have young kids, you want to go in the water. I mean, yeah. I think My you can safely. My son likes to surf, like, you yeah. know. But you can safely at frolic. At the same time, the sharks win yeah. if we vacate you can say, uh, Don't let the sharks win. You <laughs> you can safely frolic. I'm, I'm kind of a sit and look at the ocean guy. I'll frolic to a certain degree. I, I'm not going. But you can't I'm not splash too much. No, no. I mean frolicking, like, below the shins. <laughs> All right, Cayenne, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a summer Stay of sharks. Tuned. I feel like we're going to talk about this again. I do, too. <laughs>
And that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. That's it for 321Go. Up next, an interview with Northeast Dark. I'm Ann Murphy, Senior Vice President at O'Neill & Associates, and my podcast guests are Joanne Simons, President and CEO of Northeast Arc, and Nick Savarese, Executive Director of the Flutie Foundation. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Ann, for having us. It's, it's great to have you, Nick, too. Happy I hope to I pronounced here. your name right. You did. Okay. I, I, I thought we were going to have to you know, edit it, correct it, but no, great. No problem. Sa- I know some Savarises. That's why. I think Wonderful. I, you know, thank you. I'm glad I did that. Well, we're here today to talk about the unique competition that seeks out proposals to help people with intellectual disabilities and autism. It's called the Arc Tank. It's fashioned on the popular TV show, The Shark Tank, but this year, the Arc Tank is coming into its third year, which is amazing. Joanne, tell us about the Arc Tank Competition 3.0, I think that's the name of it, and what's in store for this year? Well, what's in store, and one of the reasons you're going to be hearing from Nick, is that we actually have three additional funders that have joined with the into the Changing Lives Fund, which was established three years ago with a million-dollar donation by Stephen Rosenthal, uh, a Boston businessman, who challenged us to do something unique and different with the money, not just to the typical kind of philanthropy that was going on and investing in on programs that currently might exist or in trying to invent something that would meet a donor's uh, need, but to do something in a much larger scale. So we decided to do an international competition Pardoned after the Shark Tank, as you uh, as you uh, alluded to, and invite positively disruptive ideas into disability, and it was so popular and so well received. We received 100 applications each year, over 100 applications from around the world. We've made um, a $400,000 investment so far into six organizations and businesses. And this year, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation, the Nancy Lurie Marks Foundation and the Developmental Disabilities Council of Connecticut uh, have joined in to increase that pot, so that's actually going to be $300,000 this year. Excellent. So uh, let's hear from Nick about your organization, the Flutie Foundation, and why you decided to join the Arc Tank. Sure. So we're the Flutie Foundation, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation for Autism, founded by former NFL and Boston College star Doug Flutie and his wife Lori. Uh, They had a son, Doug Jr., who has autism. And, uh, you know, we're in our 21st, 22nd year, and what they realized early on, you know, their son, Dougie, had all these challenges, and they couldn't find supports uh, for Doug Jr. And these are people of relative means and celebrity, and they thought to themselves, wow, like, you know, if, if we can't find appropriate support for our son who has autism, what about these other families who might not have the means we have? And that's what started the foundation. And that's really been our guiding principle for, you know, 20 years now, which is, you know, helping people and families affected by autism live today, live live life to the fullest today. Um, so that's the background on the Flutie mm-hmm. Foundation. Now, as it relates to Arc Tank, now, Joanne and I have known one another for a long time, and uh, and our organizations have collaborated together for, for a long time, even before we were in our respective roles there. So it's a real natural partnership. Um, so we're just really excited to, to, to be a part of it all. And so, we yeah. were really excited because the Flutie Foundation, which represents autism, as it turns out, 
70% of the proposals that we received were really autism-specific proposals, and the other 30% were going to somehow impact people with autism. So it's such an important, needed area that affects so many people from in a range of spectrum, because autism is a spectrum mm-hmm. disorder. Um, so the, the, you know, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation was a natural fit. Well, so for the Flutie Foundation, what do you hope to take away from the Arc Tank at the end of the day? Well, I, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I, I think we and, and Joanne can attest in the Northeast Arc, we're also focused on meeting basic needs and problems that are happening in the disability world today, right? It's uh, it, That consumes all of our time at the Flutie Foundation. I think it consumes a lot of time at the Northeast Arc and, and all the agencies that, that serve people with autism and disability. So thanks to the uh, generosity of, of, of Mr. Rosenthal and the vision of Joanne, this sort of allows us to think about tomorrow for to a little while. To push the envelope a little yeah. bit, go beyond what and, is just taking care of people, but really helping them out in a different way. Yeah, and, and so I think ultimately, you know, if we can learn new ideas and, um, you know, help help push this envelope, I think that's that's why we're excited to be a part of it and to just build collaborations that, that, that um, we continue to have. And this year's theme of Arctank 3.0 is about partnerships because we noticed that every application that came in really included a partner, that an organization, a business, for-profit, a not-for-profit, nobody can do it alone. And so this one is really going to emphasize partnerships. And we're hoping that, you know, somebody's listening here and thinks, well, I don't have anything to do with disability, but maybe thinks about the product or the business that they're in and whether or not there's an opportunity to expand their product or business line to include people with disabilities, that they'll think of this as an opportunity to apply to the Tank for funding. So the applications are open right now. They are online. Just mm-hmm. Google the Arc Tank, A R A R C, Tank, right? A R C, right? Tank, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you'll well, find be- all the application materials, as well as a link to the past six winners right. and some video that will um, help you know help you. I think uh, in think about your ideas. And for those, so the format of the day, which is very exciting, and it's free and open to the public, and. People should know that it's going to be at the John F. Kennedy Library because another one of our partners is the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation. And we're really there for two reasons. Well, maybe three reasons. One is it's a spectacular venue. If you haven't been there, you should be there anyway. Mm -hmm. We're in a room overlooking the ocean. And President Kennedy really challenged us for a moonshot. And this is actually the 50th anniversary year of the landing on the moon. So we are looking for that idea that will be very consistent with the president's call for a moonshot and also in recognition that the Kennedy family has had a life well several generations commitment to people with intellectual disabilities and autism and so it's a fitting venue a beautiful venue and it's um Open, free and open to the public on November 19th, 19th from 2 to 5. And it's an event. It's really a happening kind well, of an event. I've been there. I can attest to that. The energy, the ideas, the enthusiasm, and the people that make connections in that room. Right, because there are other funders in the room. And we have a celebrity, no, I shouldn't say, an expert panel of judges. Some of them might are kind of local celebrities. We have Shirley Luong from the Boston Globe, Quincy Miller from Eastern Bank. Um, Matt Millett, who is a Special Olympic athlete who at the World Games in Abu Dhabi recently made an 80-foot free free throw. Yeah, an 80-foot three-pointer. It went viral. It was all over. We'll show you that. Um, Mary Lou Sutters, who's the Secretary of Human Services. Um, There is... uh, 
Matt Kennedy, who is um, a member of the Kennedy family and um, was important, wanted to make sure that we continue to engage folks. And we have Ralph James, um, who is a philanthropist and uh, associated with Harvard Business School. And wrapping it all together for us is uh, David Chang, who is a local investor, uh, now running a company called Gratify. So, Joanne, and maybe, Nick, you can comment on this as well. Joanne, do you think the Arc Tank has uh, really impacted how policies are being implemented or how people are thinking about programs and services to help individuals with intellectual disabilities and autism? Has this project now kind of spurred that intellectual curiosity and entrepreneurship? I think we've been part of it, and I, I hope that we could try to begin to measure it. But I think that the greatest... Uh, testament to that is we're seeing that we're being copied and that a lot of organizations that are dealing in and outside of the disability world are using this as a disruptive way to generate new ideas and you see it in you know small hackathons to you know larger programs as well. Do you think Nick that this type of thing is necessary to really push the envelope further? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's the encouragement this year of, of collaboration uh, is really important because, you know, again, I've, I've attended the Arc Tank in the past as a guest and thought, you know, how can we get involved in this? Because, you know, uh, you know, I think there's there's not a ton of public philanthropy going into the disability world and, and, and autism space. So so for us to kind of um, band together and to 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 put it on the forefront, to to publicize uh, the efforts of all these wonderful organizations that are that are trying to, to move the needle, I think it will uh, continue to have a positive impact. And I just want to um, make the point that the Nancy Lurie Marks Foundation has come in with a specific interest in aging and autism. And so that's a really important thing because as you know, the, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation for Autism began around an issue that was affecting children and families, as the Flutie Foundation and the rest of us have realized, those folks are aging. And for now, we're going to be beginning to look at a cohort of people that are going to have issues that we never imagined, we never looked at, and we never addressed. So we're excited that the Nancy Lurie Marks Foundation's participation will be slowly On aging. in aging. And I know that the state of Connecticut, they I, that's a good, interesting story about how they wanted to do their own, but then they said, no, it's much better to work with you. Well, that's right, because then their money can go directly to service to whatever idea they want to support versus having to pay for the infrastructure to create a competition. But they wanted to do a competition. We're hoping that will you know, maybe inspire other state DD councils to be able to do the same thing. And then we're thinking about whether or not the Arc Tank actually is something that we is going to become a na you know much more nationally um, focused event. And you know, maybe it's something at some point the Northeast Arc will have to, you know, as all parents do, sometimes they have to let their children go on and try a new adventure. But for now, it's for still now. here, and uh, thank you for coming in today. It's just a wonderful program, and I know that people can find out more by going on the website. And what's the Flutie Foundation website as well? Uh, FlutieFoundation.org, or you know, simply just Google Flutie Foundation, and uh, you know, uh, everything pops up. Remind people that if they want to attend uh, attend the event, eventually there'll be an invitation right, put on them. Right, you can make reservations, and we're at any hyphen arc.org. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And now, two minutes with Tom. Away on air. Hi, Tom. Hi, Cayenne. How are you? Good. How are you? Two. I'm a little tired because I was up late last night. Did you watch that debate? I did. I watched the whole thing. Yeah, Even I, though, by the way, 11 o'clock is way past my bedtime. 
I watched the entire thing as well. Kind of a jumble. I think that's what you get when you get 10 people. Yeah. First opportunity to really talk to new audiences, explain who they are. Some of them did better than others. Yeah, less a debate, I think, than kind of showing colors as to who they are in a kind of self-be-aware-of-me way and kind of trying to brand themselves so they go the next step. So I thought Elizabeth Warren did very well. First of all, she was center stage. Mm -hmm. And in the first 25 minutes, she really dominated, I thought, most of the... You know, most of the talking. Less a debate than given, talking. And was given the questions. Given the question. That's yeah. right. Um, I think some of the lesser known folks, I think the mayor of New York, uh, while interrupting people, at least brought attention to himself and had something to say at the same time. So you get a sense of who he is, what his, you know, what his core value is about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's important. Uh, I was a little surprised at how little well Beto O'Rourke did. Uh, surprised as well about you know, some of the lesser-known candidates who just never got started, mm-hmm. never given a chance. They were given questions, but either were interrupted or given questions they weren't expecting and therefore weren't prepared for, I thought. Or didn't capitalize on the moment. Didn't capitalize yeah. on the moment. I think yeah. that's right. There was uh, somebody uh, tweeted, I think it was um, one of the people from Crooked Media, that they were all sort of doing it backwards. Like, you're supposed to answer the question, then pivot to your stump speech, and so many of them were just skipping the question and going straight to the stump speech, which I understand, but I find that very obnoxious. And, and, and a little confusing, to be honest yeah. with you. So if you ask a question on the air and you're the audience listening, you do expect something in the way of at least an acknowledgement of the question. Yes. Beyond, you know, beyond or before the pivot. Um, and and so we people, talk about that when we do media training. Right, absolutely. Is, is how do you answer the question, but then still get to Your where point. you want to go? That's right. And, it, and it's really very important. And I, and I think um, I think O'Rourke, again, I think he took some real hits from some of the folks on stage who questioned his, 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 you know, his moral compass on immigration issues. Um, I thought he tried to recover and, and kind of stumbled a bit. I, I, felt, uh, I felt bad for him, to be honest kind with you. awkward. A little awkward. A little awkward. Yeah. A little awkward. I thought Castro did a great job. I, I thought, you, you know, he, you know where he comes from. You know what he's about. Uh, he's not intimidated or afraid of, of a question. He's not uh, afraid or intimidated by anybody on that stage. No. He can hold his own with mm-hmm. anybody. And I, I thought he was very strong, to be honest. Same. So we've got another one tonight, another 10 people, a whole different group of 10 tonight. What do you think tonight's going to look like? I, I think what we ought to look for are, are people who looked at last night I'm talking about the 10 people participating in tonight's uh, discussion slash debate. And we'll be saying, you know, I saw the mayor of New York interrupt and it worked. Uh, So I think you're going to see some of that, to be very honest with you. When people want to make a point, they're not going to raise their hand and be polite. I think they're going to just butt in and tell people what's on their mind. Um, It'll be interesting to see how the moderators kind of control the ebb and flow of the discussion. I thought the moderation last night was just okay. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, there was honest. I felt too many of them. I thought some of the moderators did a really good job. Um, I actually thought the female moderators did a better job than than the men in sort of sticking to the time and saying, you know, we've got a lot to get through and, and trying to keep people on task. And again, it's t- it's tough when you get ten people who are vying for the spotlight. Well, I think in, in the final thought about last night's debate and tonight's discussion, I do think what happens is there'll be a a winnowing out 
of some of these candidates who just won't, you know, muster to the next stage. And, you know, you're going to see it, not with what I have to say or, frankly, what you have to say, but what the the, the people watching have to say and what the effect of that's going to be, you know, in the next in, in the next kind of quarter, if you will. Who's raising money? Who's not raising money at the clip or at the, or at the pace that they should be? You know, those are the things that people will be looking for, and they're going to force people out of the race because it just that that support just will not be there. All right. Well, another two hours I tonight. Love being, I, I love being <laughs> with you. Thanks, Guyan. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.